Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello and welcome to The Bunker Daily. I'm Andrew Harrison. When politicians are asked about what they're reading, we expect to hear about works of political philosophy or Dickens or Goethe or Trollope. Or maybe, to ring that populist bell, Harry Potter. But towards the end of his presidency, Barack Obama cited something unexpected, a dense epic of Chinese science fiction called The Three-Body Problem by a former computer engineer turned superstar author called Liu Xichin. It was just wildly imaginative, Obama said. The scope of it was immense. That was fun to read, partly because my day-to-day problems with Congress seem fairly petty, not something to worry about when aliens are about to invade. This book was my gateway to Liu Xichin's Remembrance of Earth Past trilogy, and it's the tip of the iceberg in a Chinese literary world that is far more fertile, unconventional, and independent-minded than we might think. Here to guide me through it all is Megan Walsh, a literary journalist who specializes in China, and she's the author of The Subplot, What China is Reading and Why It Matters. Hi, Megan. How are you doing? Hi, very well, thanks. How are you doing? Not bad, not bad. Um, I was really surprised to learn from your book that uh, Chinese literature isn't this kind of top-down, regimented thing where messages are propagated from from above, but it's much, much more fluid. Writers can second-guess censors. They often succeed in sneaking subversive ideas onto the shelves. In modern-day China, how much does Xi Jinping's regime see literature as a tool? It's a, it's a really good question. I, mean, I think Xi Jinping has really put himself forward as a, as a literary president. And this is something that actually is another thing that links him to Chairman Mao, who was a, a poet. And of course, Mao was the only person uh, that most people were really allowed to read towards the end of his leadership. So in many ways, it has a big influence in principle. And certainly since Xi Jinping has come into power, he's expressed much more interest in, in the arts and seeing culture as something that needs to be absolutely embedded into uh, how the regime functions. It's seen as a sort of proxy or something that must serve it. Whereas before him, it was actually much looser and I think there was a little bit more leeway. Um, but that is certainly changing at the moment. You explained that, that she's idea of the China dream and that Chinese society and everything that happens in it, including culture, has to serve and basically tell China's story well, I think is the phrase. What does he mean by that? What does telling China's story well mean? Yeah, I think this is something which writers have been trying to second guess as well. What tends to be a feature of how the government and, and the censors play a role with, within culture is they, they give these sort of quite broad ideas about what writers and artists are supposed to do, and then they try and second guess what that is. So I think generally it needs to be quite optimistic and positive about where China is headed. And also, I think ideally, they would reinterrogate communist history 
in a way that celebrated it, you know, made it look like sacrifices were part of the modern plan for national rejuvenation. And, and anything that sort of serves those purposes is very much welcomed. And anything that doesn't is treated with a little bit of caution. You describe Chinese censorship as the anaconda in the chandelier. It doesn't have to strike as long as you know that it's there. But does Chinese literature, I know this is a massively broad question for, you know, hundreds of thousands of authors and tens and hundreds of millions of readers. Does Chinese literature in general fulfill that brief or, you know, is, is, is she really on top of what's being written? Absolutely not. And I think what Chinese literature really shows is that it's sort of impossible to, you know, for ideologues and ideologies to, to really shape what happens to culture. Of course, it has a huge impact on it and it's a huge threat to a thriving and exciting scene. But Chinese writers have been living with this climate for the best part of 80 years in various degrees. And they've, you know, found really fascinating ways to subvert it, to poke fun at it, to sublimate it. And some have really tried to embrace it and failed miserably, which is also a kind of, you know, strange and quite comedic result, you know, which is unexpected. But generally, I would say the landscape that I have tried to sort of portray of, of Chinese fiction, which is very sort of strange and diverse and varied, is proof that even if people are trying to tell that story, they can't quite do it because the artistic process kicks in and, and does something else. Well, we'll talk about the, 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 the strange and fabulous things that are popular in China at the moment in, in a bit. But I wanted to ask you about one particular writer, the writer Mo Yan, who won the uh, Nobel Prize in 2012. Salman Rushdie described him as a patsy of the regime. Who is Mo Yan? And is that, is that a fair description? Because this is one of the biggest authors in China at the moment. He is. It's a fair description in some ways in that he is famously known for winning the Nobel Prize for Literature in 2012. He's a prolific writer, very, he's celebrated in China and abroad. But, you know, he's a, he's an upstanding member of the Communist Party. He has referred to censorship as a bit like airport security. And he copied out the edict that Mao had in the 1940s, I think at the Yen'an Yen meeting, which is about all artists should serve the party. And he copied it out in public and, and people just saw it as a sort of disaster really in terms of what the art should represent in China. But then you read his novels and they don't in any way reflect that kind of sort of collaborative spirit he seems to portray in public. They're raucous and politically subversive and problematic and many of them have been banned. And he, he very much represents the sort of split nature of the writer and the writing in China, I would say. You talk about the, one of his books, Life and Death are Wearing Me Out, where a man is reincarnated over and over again, sometimes as a donkey or a pig or a monkey, and he witnesses the entirety of Chinese history with a very satirical side eye. This sounds like very, very deep cover if you're copying out Mao in public and then subverting the regime in your books. That's right. And uh, I mean, I, I wouldn't say he's even doing it sort of that brazenly. I think it's it's very much his voice. It's very much his experience of working as a propaganda writer when he was younger. And, you know, he was in the PLA. He was known as a red pen, somebody who, who wrote for the, the regime. And it's just his way of finding a voice that's completely his own and belongs to China. And it's complex and contradictory and, and always exciting to read. What do you get out of Chinese literature yourself? What, what drew you to this stuff? Yeah, I, I lived in China back in 2004 and then when I was working at the Times newspaper, I was in the book section. 
was able to write some reviews of various Chinese authors. And I think I was, I was first, like most people, drawn to the dissident voices, the people who felt very brave and they were using their art to directly critique you know, an authoritarian regime. But then that also led me into the people who are living there and working within that, that system and writing equally innovative and interesting stuff. And I think I've always been fascinated by people who work within parameters in some ways and, and what that can create. I mean, Yen Yen Ke, another writer that I love, talks about why he, he likes being a caged bird in some ways because it gives him something to respond to. He, he doesn't long for the freedom of the, the bird in the sky, even though he knows that sounds perverse. And I'm, I'm interested in that. Who is your own favorite writer of, in the Chinese world? Oh, I have quite a few. I mean, Yen Yanko is definitely one of my favorites. Um, I love a lot of the sci-fi writers. They're sort of younger and, um, you know, very experimental. There's a young writer called Chen Jianan who writes, you know, quite Western fiction almost in terms of, uh, sort of coming of age, falling in love stories, but she's just a brilliant writer. Um, but there's a lot of them out there um, doing all sorts of interesting stuff. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Well, let's talk about the three-body problem for a bit and why it was such a hit across the world. I mean, the, the Game of Thrones writers, David Benioff and D.B. Weiss, are actually adapting it for Netflix now. And I believe there was also an aborted movie version made, made in China. The three-body problem, for people who haven't read it, is an astonishing, gigantic, million-year-long political space opera. But it actually begins in the Chinese Cultural Revolution. A future astrophysicist sees their father brutalized by Red Guards, and it destroys their faith in humanity to the extent that they will willingly collaborate in an alien invasion of Earth and the destruction of the human race. It's for, to begin your big Chinese science fiction story with a denunciation of one of the pivotal moments of Chinese history. It's quite a big thing, isn't it? It's huge. Um, but I think interestingly in, in the Chinese version, that chapter was buried as a flashback halfway through the novel because the author knew that it wouldn't pass uh, muster with the censors. And then it was actually his translator that recommended putting it in the first chapter. And he said that's what he always wanted to do. Liu Sin is a very interesting writer. He's a very optimistic writer, despite, you know, how, as you've, you know, read the book, it's, it's a terrifying vision of the future in a way in, in terms of intergalactic warfare and things. But he pins this particular story back to just heartbreak during the Cultural Revolution and the, the sort of human effect that that can have on, you know, the future of our planet, essentially. So he's, it's a sort of mixture of politics and also just a sort of a very like humane exploration of uh, trauma, I think. We know how successful it is at the West. How did China take it? What, what, what was, I mean, because obviously the things that we take out of it might be different from what Chinese people take from it. 
Yeah, it's hugely popular in China. Um, he's such a beloved figure there. And, you know, I think they're very proud of him. He, that he's one of the few cultural exports that hasn't sort of needed any pushing. It's It's happened completely organically. And this is something which I think you know, has been a struggle for, for writers working within the sort of authoritarian government that people don't really think that fiction there is worth reading. And when something just happens, it's not dissident fiction. It's not something that the government is pushing. It just, you know, Barack Obama picks it up and says it's great. It was just a source of great pride in China. And it's been at the top of their bestseller charts for years, you know. <laughs> and I think most Chinese readers also are very good at reading between the lines. So they wouldn't have needed the Cultural Revolution chapter to be at the beginning to know what Leo Sudsin meant. Anyone who's read it will understand the setup of the book. For those who haven't, the essential thing is that there is a distant alien race that is unaware of us and one individual on earth alerts them to our presence in the knowledge that any civilization that discovers another civilization will immediately attempt to destroy it because it will be a threat. And there's a lot of argument about whether the book is an allegory to China and the US, the, the distant threat of this other culture and how each side is blind to the true intentions of the others. How much is that part of the conversation in China? I actually don't know is, is the honest answer. I think the great thing about fiction and the, the reason why I think Leo Sutin writes so much fiction is that it creates space for people to speculate all this stuff. In terms of Chinese readers, they, they speculate that it's about the dominance of online these sort of huge tech companies fighting it out with each other. And it's nothing to do with global politics. It's just to do with what's happening in China. And I think others will be interpreting it that way. But it's certainly something that Liu Zizin never talks about and will not give any hints that he had any intention apart from telling a good story. Because that's, that's the freedom he has to not claim any responsibility for sort of political agenda, I guess. What's refreshing to me is that it's, I mean, I've read a fair bit of science fiction, but it's not like any other science fiction. I know there, there are precious few set pieces. Solutions to massive problems are kind of collective and even bureaucratic sometimes. And yet within it are sort of real great men of history individuals or actually often tiny figures in the, in the historical firmament who have, who have massive great effect. It's a, it's, also, it's a very collectivist book, but it's also an enormously individualistic book. How does that individualism fit in with the telling the Chinese story well aspect? Yeah, that's a, another really interesting question, I guess, because we know writers were expected to write on behalf of the people and the collective, and the idea of even having an individual protagonist was problematic. And I think a lot of young writers especially feel that they live in a very individualistic society. Um, it's consumerist, it's market-driven, but they're still living under the edict that they should be writing about others, about those that are less well off than them. And I think for writers of Leo Sudsin's generation, Mo Yen's generation, they tend to always write these incredibly complex novels which have a huge cast and no one particular person that you're following. Um, even though what they do do, as you say, is show how sort of venal or individualistic people can be within those groups. And I think now there are really a lot of young people who are just trying to write, you know, coming of age stories about individuals just to sort of try it on and see if, if that's how they can find their place in, in the sort of modern urban China that has sort of emerged in the last 30 years or so. Well, this is the astonishing thing in, in the book, the description. I had no idea about this, the massive spread of popular web-based fiction. 
books, I say books with heavy inverted commas, with hundreds of chapters, 300, 1600 chapters, billions of words, often written by amateurs. It is you know, the world's biggest publishing platform. And yet material can vanish overnight, be censored overnight. AI can interfere with it overnight. Tell us a little bit about this world of Chinese independent writing, which is almost like our own fan fiction on, you know, exploded on unimaginable amounts of steroids. That's right. Yeah. I mean, it's emerged very quickly and virulently, I think primarily because of the tight regulations around the print world. It's very hard to get published unless you're sort of well-connected or have won various awards or that you submit to certain ideas of what fiction is. And then suddenly the internet offered this place for all sorts of young people, including especially girls, actually, to just write, fan, as you say, fan fiction, but also, you know, fantasies about romance or for, for male writers and readers, it tends to be a sort of model of the superhero powering up over millions of years to become the supreme being in the universe. And it was just sort of escapism in the end. And there's now, I think, something like 240 million active readers and 25 million titles. And it's just filled this huge vacuum for fiction written by young people, read by young people, that the government just has no idea really what to do with, um, because it's also extremely popular. It's fueling a very lucrative TV computer game industry. Um, but it's also managing to crowbar in all sorts of ideas that, that the government are really not comfortable with anymore. I was astounded by some of the titles, My Dangerous Billionaire Husband or Trial Marriage Husband Need to Work Hard. You, you went and read them, presumably. I don't have time to read all 1,600 chapters of Ergen's I Shall Seal the Heavens, where he lives for three billion years, cultivates his key from lowly mortal to supreme entity of the vast expanse, and transcends the passage of time itself. It's a big ask. It's a big ask, and, uh, and, and he does it in the end. He, he does get there. Oh, there is an end. <laughs> I thought I'd yeah. get the impression they think that there's no point, there, there is no ending. <laughs> yeah, amazingly, it, do, it does end at some point. But I, I think it takes about, I mean, I think it's as long as the Bible or something. It, you know, it really, it's a Herculean effort to get to the end of that. I mean, as you say, it is, it is kind of uh, often violently individualistic and quite uh, quite Kardashian-esque in, in, in my impression of it. And yet, ironically, the people writing this stuff are often data workers who have to, you know, write in all their spare hours in order to stay ahead in a ruthless market. So it's almost a dystopia in itself. You know, you're in this world of, of amateur fiction and yet you're on a gigantic hamster wheel. Absolutely. I mean, I, and I also think the way it's been monetized has meant that all these young people are, are incentivized to churn out these chapters every single day, sometimes as many as 10,000 words, 20,000 words, in the hope that they'll keep readers and then they'll make money and then sell their IP to make various TV programs and things. But obviously that rarely happens. And they are trapped in this cycle. It, and, and it really is like a cycle of sort of uh, rinse and repeat um, narrative of these young especially in the kind of male narratives, young young men kind of vanquishing a baddie in their eyes or an opponent anyway, and then starting again and then leveling up again. And you're right, it is, there is a, it's a sort of circle of hell in a way that they're sort of trapped in to try and uh, maintain their place on the platform. I was also fascinated by the, uh, the migrant worker poetry, 
which is almost like the kind of underbelly story of China. People who like leave rural locations to go and work in places like Foxconn, and they just describing what life in China is really like. There's an incredible piece of poetry by one migrant worker called I think Xu Li Zi, who killed himself at the age of 24, threw himself off a, a building opposite a bookshop. And I want to read some of the words because they sound like the Manic Street Preachers. I swallowed an iron moon. They called it a screw. I swallowed labor. I swallowed poverty. Swallowed pedestrian bridges. Swallowed this rusted out life. I spread across my country a poem of shame. That really does sound like the Manic Street Preachers. It's like powerful stuff. And he he was a, an absolutely fantastic writer, as you say. He was just a, a migrant worker from I can't remember which province he was from. And when when he died, his father, who, who was just you know a farmer, had no idea that his son wrote poetry, and he thought he was just trying to um, you know make as much money as possible in in Shenzhen in the Foxconn factory. And though it was it was a sort of huge national story actually, because uh, and it. It was slightly problematic in that people were really shocked that he could write so beautifully because he was a migrant worker. And yet there's this vast movement now of all these young people uh, moving from the countryside to the towns and they're part of these collectives, magazines they print themselves and also online, sublimating their hardship um, into really beautiful poetry. And I don't think anything like that has happened anywhere in the world uh, as far as sort of working class uh, literature goes because it, it's just been timed when the internet has made it possible and also they're all educated. They've all been to school. They can all write and read and it's it's really beautiful. Yeah, I mean, even the Dust Bowl literature of America in the 1930s, you know, Grapes of Wrath and that kind of thing, they were written not actually by the people who appeared in the stories. They were written by kind of a educated bystanders or often writers who are slumming it, but to actually have it written by the people who are experiencing this is, as you say, it's something new. I mean, there's loads we could talk about here. There's the astonishing cottagecore craze called fugu or nostalgia for traditional ways in which urban sophisticates go back to their countryside roots. I mean, this made me think, is this China's Downton Abbey or is it is it the Chinese version of the Lifetime movie, you know, where the, the city girl goes back to her simple hometown and she discovers the barman that she always, uh, she always missed and she rediscovers the simple life. It's amazing stuff. Yeah, that's a that's a really big part of things at the moment. I mean, I think it's sort of happening everywhere that you know, but sort of, you know, nostalgia can be a sort of precursor to some kind of social change. And I think certainly there is a lot of disaffection and um, unhappiness with how life is playing out in cities at the moment, and and that's certainly one where it's manifesting. We in the West tend to sort of cherish this idea that literature will automatically lead to revolt because it is individualistic and it's about a particular individual person's point of view. We tend to sort of look for protest everywhere. As you describe in the subplot, it's an awful lot more complicated than that. People making allusions to political matters and not talking about them directly. There's even reference to the date May the 35th because you can't say June the 9th because that's Tiananmen Square. Are, are, we, in the, are we in the West kind of naive to imagine that Chinese literature, you know, the, the purpose of it will always be revolt and subversion. Yeah, I think it's um, it's kind of unfair of us to expect that of it, really. I'm not sure. I mean, we we expect fiction and literature and arts to somehow, you know, agitate minds. and But actually, that's not really why people write them. I think that's changing at the moment. But I think we have to really have some sympathy for Chinese writers who are always expected to be political. They're always, whether it's the government demanding that they play to their tune, or it's people, especially from outside of China, expecting them to be revolutionary and uh, 
speaking truth to power. But it's very dangerous for them to do that. And, and that's why they've chosen to write fiction in the first place. And I guess we do need to all have conversations about what we think culture is for. And, you know, we, on the one hand, it can be about um, inspiring change. And that's been a huge part of the Chinese narrative for, I mean, since the, the turn of the 20th century. But it's also about, you know, making sense of life and learn, trying to sort of process what's going on and understand it and uh, something much more complex than that. Well, I mean, you talk about the, the dislocation in China over the past 40 years as it industrializes and urbanizes. In the past 40 years, some 300 million people have moved from rural uh, settings to the city. 800 people have moved out of poverty. By 2025, China will be the world's biggest luxury market. This is raw material for any writer at all. This is, this is absolute gold. I just in closing, wanted, wanted to ask you, you know, who are the Dickenses and the F. Scott Fitzgeralds of the new China? Who, who ought we to be reading? Well, I think this is, this is a sort of crisis in a way uh, within the literary community that they're, I think they're still believed to be the writers of the generation who experienced the cultural revolution. And they're the ones who are writing the, the, the epic uh, narratives. They are thinking about those less well off than them, they are trying to interrogate what it, what Chinese society is, but they're also increasingly out of touch with what it is because they they don't belong to this kind of modern virtual reality China almost. And the answer is I don't know. There's a lot of young writers who I think are very promising, but they're really struggling to find their feet. I would say because they have this pressure from the older generations to still sort of write certain ways. And they also don't really know how they feel about themselves in the modern world. So I think we, we have to watch this space and, and give them a bit of a chance. It's all, everything's been happening so quickly there. And I think as far as literature goes, which works at a different speed to most other art forms, people are still trying to find their feet and uh, figure out exactly where things are going. But I have great faith it'll come. <laughs> Megan, thanks so much for joining us. It's a, it's a fascinating read. It's a fascinating world. And, and uh, we didn't even get on to talk about the pandemic or anything like that. But uh, thank you for joining us. No, thanks for having me. Listeners, you can order the subplot, What China is Reading and Why It Matters, from your favourite online retailer. It is a fascinating introduction. Thanks for listening. The bunker is not subject to the anaconda in the chandelier, but we do need your help to keep going on. Please continue backing us on the crowdfunding platform Patreon. We will get the podcast early and without adverts and lots more extras too. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out more. We'll be happy to have you joining us in harmonious collaboration for Bluer Skies. See you tomorrow. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped. The scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX is Clipped. Now streaming only on Hulu.
The Bunker Daily was presented by Andrew Harrison. The producers were Jacob Archbold, Jelena Sofronievich and Alex Rees. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis and the audio producer was me, Jay Bailey. Group editor Andrew Harrison, theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. 